Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Technique. This is the podcast where we talk to artists about how they're using technology. I'm Sam Fry and I don't know about you, but I'm starting to feel a little bit of magic in the air. And maybe that's because today Richard Adams speaks to an amazing magician. But we can't go straight into that. Let's face it, you're waiting for it. I'm waiting for it. Let's hear that theme tune. Phew, what a relief. Well, today's artist is the awesome Stuart Nolan. In fact, you should hear Rich talk about him. Stuart is, for me, and he might slap me down at this, but he's the very definition of a polymath. I know he has a background in biology. I've worked with him as a programmer, and he is now working with magic inside the spaces of AI, cryptocurrencies, and technology and innovation. And also magic as gallery art. It's very interesting person with a very broad set of understandings but that have a a very clear focus I think when you hear him speak about it. Sounds cool right? Well today's podcast is a conversation between Richard and Stuart. It's around about an hour long and they speak about all kinds of things from sleight of hand to the the nature of illusions to Stuart's own history as both a technologist, a scientist and a magician. But anyway, I'm sure you don't want to listen too much to me talking, so I'll hand over to Richard to begin the interview. So Stuart's based up in Lancaster in northern England. As I say, I've known him 20-something years now, and his work has never been less than interesting. So take me right back to the beginning, because there was a point where you started this work that clearly combined your interests in technology and biology, but you came at it from the point of view of magic. Why was that? There's actually a point we can go back to that might surprise you because it's way before we even met when I got interested in the links between uh, magic and software. Hmm. So, and I, so I'd, I'd graduated with a degree in cell biology and working in cancer research in Manchester, I'm trying to decide whether I wanted to stay being a performer, which I was still doing in the evenings and weekends or whether I wanted to pursue a career in science. And I, and I kind of selfishly didn't want to give up either of those things. But I, I couldn't really see a clear way of combining them. And then I read a paper by Bruce Tog Tognazzini. Tog was one of the first interface designers for Apple. And he wrote a paper called Magic and Software Design. And he said that he thought that no art was as similar to graphic interface design than magic. And he pointed out that when those first interfaces, those first visual interfaces were designed, they were referred to as the user illusion because uh, that's, that isn't a desktop. Well, that's no. right. It's giving you an illusion of a, a metaphor that you can cope with. Very much. And, that, and, we've, um, and that we've forgotten that. And, it's, and because we've forgotten that it's a trick, we, we, we keep breaking it in different ways. Whereas if you remember that what you're doing is a metaphor and you remember that it's a trick, you remember that it's an illusion. You can pay much more careful attention to some of the aspects that make an illusion powerful. And that was something that really stuck with me. And even through those that time in the 90s when I knew you and I was and then when I went to Oyster and, you know, was a cross platform strategist and was looking at lots of different ways of designing on lots of different platforms. The idea that there was a link between lots of different forms of design and magic was something that stayed with me and something that I was trying out, in fact. So I was trying out different techniques, tactics from the world of magic. There was a long time when I didn't mention this to anybody, partly because I I didn't know if it would work. So they were kind of personal experiments, but partly because I just thought people would think I was mad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, it's easily done. I'm sorry. (laughs) I thought it was to just, you know, do these kinds of things in the background and, and see if they work or not. And it was, you know, going freelance. And I spent that time setting up the first 
interactive TV training for the BBC. And I think it was around the time when, I don't know, were we both judges on the BAFTA Interactive Awards? We were around that time, yeah. Yeah. And it was around that time when I, when I started talking about it a lot more. I started revealing what I'd been doing. And Nesta got interested. So Nesta ended up asking me or offering me this fellowship. So they funded me for three years to look at what back then we called it applied magic. You know, so could we take techniques from the world of magic and apply them to lots of different areas? Education was one of the areas we looked at. And education and magic is a tricky area, I think. There's this general general sense that you can use magic to communicate ideas, uh, to communicate things like science, for instance. But a lot of the time, the way I see magic being used is to distract people from learning. Mm. So it can be as, as problematic as it can be useful if it's not done correctly, I think. So it basically, is. you had three years to, to really sort of start pulling together all your ideas. Yeah. Um, to get I mean, them into a, a, at least a usable model. I'm not sure if I managed to do that in the three years. Okay. Um, one thing I did was I took a, a part-time role as a senior, senior lecturer in digital media design up in Huddersfield. So what that allowed me to do was teach some of these things. And that's a very good way of working through those things with, with, you know, with students. I agree, totally. But then by 2009, um, I realized that I was doing far too many things that would distract me from the teaching. So I, so I left academia. Although I'm still um, co-editor of the Journal of Performance Magic with Nick Taylor over there in, in, in Huddersfield. So, I, you know, I still have some links to, to the academic study of magic. One thing that's in, interesting to note is that back when I started thinking about these things, academia really wasn't looking at magic as, as an interesting area. Um, but there's been a couple of areas of academia that have woken up to the to the fact that magic is very interesting. Well, why do you think that is? Is that is that because of the possibilities in technology that have made them realise there are some links, or is it just that there is more research being done into magic, into things like idiomotor responses, etc.? Yeah, I mean, it, it, to be honest, it, there isn't an awful lot going on in in idiomotor responses. Te technology is one of the things. Uh, MIT of a whole module on magic and interface design that they that they now teach um, so technology is certainly one thing product is design is another thing we're you know we're making objects that have a sense of animism mm. that have a kind of life that, that, that have the ability to do more and more amazing things well i think they also have no outer edge they they adapt yeah logics objects and spines all, and all of that. that sort of stuff is starting to happen that that's really kind of magical talking and magical thinking. So somebody like Betty Marenko, who's at Central Saint Martins, she organised an interesting seminar, which was which was mostly product designers and some architects and me, you know, talking about the magical aspects of of technology. But the other area is is a growing interest in perceptual illusion. So there was a a book called Slights of Mind that was written by a, a couple who they run the best illusion of the year competition. And they, they said they were driving through Las Vegas talking about who they were going to have their next conference to do with illusions and asking themselves, you know, have we, have we thought of everybody who, mm. who's interesting that we haven't invited? And they were driving through Vegas and they looked out the window and saw all, all of the big posters for, for the big magicians. <laughs> of course. Yeah. And did that kind of slap on the forehead and when we haven't invited any magicians to this. So they did a big conference where they invited a lot of magicians along. They did a bunch of research with magicians. And we, if we look at the past 150 years, there were five papers published, most of them kind of late Victorian times, where psychologists looked at how magic worked. And then nothing until the past 10 years. Wow. And, and there have been about 50 papers in the past 10 years. So Gustav Kuhn, who's based at Goldsmiths, uh, has driven a lot of that work. Some really interesting work. We, we recently had, a couple of months ago, the second conference of the, uh, the the Science of Magic Association. I was going to ask, actually, about the science side of it. Is, is part of the boom currently being pushed? I say boom, obviously, you know, with limited scope. But the fact it's come back as a scientific research area, is that partly being sort of driven also by the boom in neuroscience and the technologies we can now use to unlock because i mean there's some interesting stuff going off there about people trying to understand what art actually is 
you know, and uh, why it exists. Certainly the neuroscience tools are mm. part. I think it's, a, it's still at a very low level yet. You know, even the people involved will say this. And the, at the moment, we're at a, quite a low level of collaboration, I think, where really the magicians are still like the laboratory rats. So magicians are objects of study. Sometimes magicians are used as a way of communicating science. With, and both, there's nothing wrong with either of these things. These are both interesting ways of, of collaborating. But I think things get more interesting when we have proper collaborations between the scientists and the artists. Mm. And the artists um, question science as much as the scientists question the artists. So there's, there is, there's always this danger in, in sci-art projects where the science the scientists tend to think that the artists are there to prettify or communicate their importance oh, no, no no i'd agree i've saying at an event the other night that um i think you know there's a lot of people make data visualizations and call it art and actually it's not it's just beautiful to look at it's, you know? it's, it's, it's very pretty and <clears throat> we have we have this in in the way a lot of magicians create magic using science you know so they'll they will they will use things like iPads or robots, and they tend to be from a very pro technology, pro science, very uncritical, utopian point of view. Yeah, and and there's nothing wrong with that kind of art and that kind of wow, that's cool. Look how amazing that technology or that science is. That you know that can actually be at its best, really quite beautiful work. But it has to fit personality of the artist, perhaps, and that that isn't my personality. I think I think it's also true that the art that the artists and magicians who do that kind of work they don't have a background in science, hmm. so they haven't done those grim things I've done, where you know doing a laboratory job for for several years is you see the dull and grimy and boring side of science. And you, you spend years wrangling with the difficult questions rather than seeing them as fascinating puzzles. You know, they become that grinding day-to-day -day work. Something I saw written somewhere recently said that the scientific method and the artistic method were two sides of the same coin in that primarily both artists and scientists do things, ask questions, test, look at the results and then work based on the results and move forwards. Would you say that's no, I, something I, you experience? No, I, I, I'd say that that way of expressing it massively simplifies both sides of the coin. I think to say the scientific method is is wrong to start with. There are many different kinds of scientific methods. There are indeed. You know, and some of them are purely historical. You know, if you're if you're an astronomer, you don't necessarily set up an experiment and then test it in the same way because all you can really do is observation. There are many different kinds of artistic method. I think I think these comparisons, once you start asking questions, there aren't as many different methods as there are artists, but there are many, many different ways of making art, and there are many different ways of doing science. So talk to me a little bit about your some of your earlier work with Video Bird. I've, I've had a, what's getting on now for a kind of six or seven year fascination with, with idiomotor responses. It began with Pat Kane asked me to do something for Future Fest in 2012. And he, first of all, he asked if I, if I had any ideas for themes, because the question being asked at Future Fest was, what will life be like in 2050? And of course, the, you know, the real answer is we don't know because it's too far away. Of course, yeah. but, but let's come up with some themes to just, you know, start conversations around these things. So I started looking at, you know, there were a lot of very smart people there talking about very big themes. So I decided to take a selfish approach and a smaller approach and ask, what's it going to be like for a magician in 2050? Will, will we still have magicians in 2050? And I focused particularly on mind reading. And started looking at what are referred to as thought identification technologies. I realized that we, we have machines now that can tell us what number we're thinking of, what dream we're re recalling, um, what video we're watching. Really quite startling stuff, which probably means that for performing mind readers, 
they're going to be out of a job in perhaps the next 10 or 15 years. Well, it's nice to hear, like the rest of us, they're going to be affected. This is a, an interesting way of terrifying people. You know, if I, yeah. if, I can, if I can do some mind-reading things with technology on stage and then say, you know, in 10 or 15 years, if I walk on stage and say, I can read your minds, and the whole audience laughs and says, we've all downloaded the app, we can all do this. If, if, if the magicians and the mind readers are going to be out of work, then it, you ask yourself, will I be out of work? You know, who else is going to be out of work? Yeah. So, that, so that was really the point of the, or one of the points of, of, the, of the performance. So in order to play with this, I made Idio Bird. So Idio Bird is a mind-reading robot bird. The interesting thing about Idio Bird is that initially Idio Bird was, let's, let's call Idio Bird a design fiction. Though, of course, from another point of view, Idio Bird is a prop and a fake. Yeah? And so the, for the first performance, the whole thing was made up. So what Idio Bird would do is he would hold Idio Bird and Idio Bird would sense the muscle movements in your hand and from that divine what you were thinking of. Um, but I've got this tactic when I perform that, and when I show technologies, I, I, I have the technology do what it's capable of and then I always have it do something that it isn't actually capable of. Mm -hmm. And my aim there is to get the audience questioning. So, so I use this phrase "questionable technology," by which I mean, don't we all? <laughs> yeah, but, but you know, deliberately technology that causes us to ask troubling questions about. What do you things. mean by troubling? Well, let me let me go back to to what happened with Video Bird, and okay. I'll come back to troubling yeah, yeah. later on. So it was later that year, Pervasive Media Studio advertised for a magician in residence. So. What they were looking for was uh, a performer who would ask a, a challenging question, or have a challenging job that they could get both the people at Pervasive Media Studio and Bristol um, University who were collaborating on this. So a kind of challenge of something that the magician wanted to make. And what I wanted to do was make Idio Bird for real, because it seems, seemed to me entirely possible to do that. And, and that's pretty much what we did. Um, we put accelerometers on people and measured their tiny muscle movements. And it doesn't take very long to be picking up those signals. Okay. And as long as you put them into a kind of performative framework where you can ask people the right questions, you can very easily tell what they're thinking of. So we moved from, from Idio Bird to something that we call Ouija Bird. So Ouija Bird, what Idio Bird can do is tell you what you're thinking of between one of one of two things. You know, Idio Bird can do a yes or no. What Ouija Bird was doing was putting a number onto this and being a, a way of measuring how good you are at making the pendulum wobble, if you like. So how good you are when you imagine something, when you imagine a physical thing happening, how well your body responds by doing that wobbling. Okay. And this, this was partly because I was doing some work with sport coaches and you find that, you know, if you're, if you're training in tennis and you, you can spend all day long practicing a serve and then go and relax and just think about practicing the serve. And if you measure that, the body at that point, little tiny muscle movements will be happening. You know, much like if, if you're watching television and you, and you, and you're watching boxing, you, you, your body will be doing tiny little boxing well, movements. We, we can measure your heart rate from little fluctuations in your skin on your face as it's happening. You can't control that. Yes. Um, there are lots of things happening in your body continually because it's a constantly running system. Yeah, so, and, and, and this ties in with a lot of, you know, embodied cognition research mm. with ideas about common coding in the brain, uh, you know, the way that, that we don't have specific units of the brain doing specific things. So there's a lot of overlap. So there's a lot of kind of leakage between those different processes. So Ouija Bird was a way of, in a fun way, mocking the whole idea of IQ tests. Mm. So saying there's a very different kind of intelligence, which comes from the ability to respond to things physically in the world in a subconscious way. Yeah. And so some of the people I've trained in, in muscle reading, which I'll talk about in a second, people like tango dancers are, are incredibly good at muscle reading. And it's something they do already. They can put their hand in the small of your back when you're dancing with them. Mm -hmm. and, and they know where you want to go before you consciously know it yourself. 
So, so the, where my idiomotor research has taken me more recently is away from using technology at all and training people to do it. So, so this this started with Cognovo, who are based down in Plymouth, who do research into uh, cognition and creativity. They asked me to go down and teach them about the stuff I was doing with idiomotor responses, but specifically. They were interested in uh, automaticity and, and automatic drawing techniques oh, okay. that surrealists used. Wondered if there was any overlap with that. So I ran a three-hour workshop where we we tried automatic drawing. We did some kind of hypnosis stuff, although there's there's not a huge overlap necessarily between EDMO responses and, and hypnosis. We played with some of the technology. We played some of the Victorian parlor games that that muscle readers had come up with. So one, and we ended by playing a game where people had been working in pairs, so they practiced quite well how to read each other's muscles in pairs. Mm-hmm. We would send one of the pair would go out of the room, the other pair would do a drawing. We'd make it, make it a simple drawing, a drawing where you, the pen doesn't leave the paper very often, and then they would they would hide that drawing. The other person would come back in from outside and they would sit holding a pencil on a piece of paper. The person who'd done the original drawing would hold their wrist and not guide them, but just think about the drawing. And as they were thinking about the drawing, to imagine that the other person's hand is their hand. Mm -hmm. The person holding the pencil would move the pencil around and try to find the path of least resistance. And what you find is subconsciously, the person who did the original drawing, who's holding their wrist, wants to guide them. But it doesn't feel to them like they're guiding them. And the guidance they're giving subconsciously is very subtle. So neither person feels like they're guiding or or being guided. And we didn't know how well this would work at all. And every single person duplicated the drawing. And we swapped them around. Every single person duplicated the drawing again. And I said, put your hand up if you thought that would work. Nobody put their hand up because nobody thought it was going to work. Wow. And what I, what I noticed was how incredibly excited the people were. Because <laughs> they've, they've just read each other's minds. Yeah. Right? And so this is a room of artists and psychologists swapping, swapping numbers. going, We've got to get together again and read each other's minds again. Yeah. And so I realized that this that this technique is something that it does work. Um, there's nothing strange and weird and supernatural about it. And that's one of the problems is in the past, it's, it got overlapped with things like Ouija boards and spiritualism and all that kind of stuff. But in fact, this is what working with athletes and and those tango dancers who were great. You know, this taught me that this is something that people do already. They just don't know what's going on when they're doing it. You know, I've been reading all those things about uh, octopus intelligence and, you know, distributed intelligence and things like that through the bodies and the fact that, you know, our bodies are part of our brain to a large extent because our intelligence exists in some form throughout, you know, the rest of our systems. Yeah. And I, and I think you're right. People haven't really thought of it like that. And, and, and the more people I, I do it with, <clears throat> the more areas I find where it's important. So I... I did it with the game design course at Alto University over in Helsinki. And the, the interesting thing for game designers is how we, we have subconscious ways of operating interfaces. Mm. So, so game controls. If we had game controls that could pick up on our sub, subliminal muscle movements and then do things based on that, there's a whole area of idiomotor interface design that's interesting. So one of the things that that came from that is a bunch of apps that I've been developing with um, Bristol University. That are that are some of them are games, some of them are weird ways of locking and unlocking your phone, all based on idiomotor controlled, on on, on very gentle, sublim- almost almost subliminal control rather than very conscious control. Mm-hmm. But you know, I did it with a. Uh, NHS Research Northwest because they're interested in how these things can tie into occupational therapy 
to do with the architectural association because when you, one other, another thing you can do is have when you're working in pairs is one one person hides an object and then the then they walk around oh yeah and you hold their hand and you can find the object they've hidden is this and really robust then i mean does this seem I to be does it seem I, to happen every time you do it um i've got to the point now where i very seldom have a failure hmm. and if somebody fails i know the questions to ask to to, to help them succeed what is normally happening is they're trying to think about the science of what's happening while they're doing it. Uh, and so I'll say to them, what you're doing is like you're trying to play guitar while thinking about the science of how guitars work. And it's also the fact that, <clears throat> going back to the magic, you know, you're trying to overrule the suggestion elements of things. In the yeah. sense that for magic to work well, you know, you don't want to know how the trick works, really. Well, that depends. <laughs> <laughs> People are very different in how they experience magic. There's lots mm. of different ways of experience it. But um, the next thing that I'm doing with, the, with this mind-reading drawing is to try to train in a year a thousand new mind-readers and to do this in lots of different places. I think I've got about six or seven places lined up because of one thing, one thing that happens is you generate a lot of very interesting drawing. Because you, you you generate the original drawings and then you generate the duplications that people are doing. So the difference between the surrealists' automatic drawing is that what they were doing was trying to draw with their own subconscious. They were, yeah. What's happening here is you're trying to draw with somebody else's subconscious, or perhaps more accurately, a link between the two. So the drawings are really quite interesting. Um, I mean, what's interesting for me is, though, that you're using elements of the physicality of the body as well, rather than just the mind, which is the surrealists were, you know, bothered about dreams and this, that and the other. Yes, yes, yeah. And you're yeah. bringing it into a very real physical space. I think that's a, that's a really interesting point. And, and it, and it may be because the, the surrealists were back in that time mm. when they still conceptualized the mind as very much in the brain. Yes, when, Nowadays, we're conceptualizing the mind as being, as you say, distributed, embodied in, in, in very different yeah, ways. Yeah, embodiment's a major part now of understanding it, isn't it? It's, uh... Yeah. So one thing I'm looking for, if anybody out there wants to play, is uh, venues uh, and a bunch of people uh, who want to learn how to be mind readers and who want to generate these drawings. What type of venue? Sizes? Well, I've done the, the biggest group I've done so far was, I think, Hyper Island, where we did, I think, 45 people. Okay. There's no reason why I couldn't do more. One thing that's, that limits it is everybody needs a table to work on. It's difficult to do it on the floor. So everybody needs a table that they can, they can sit at or at least stand next to each other while doing these things. It takes around an hour if I do it, you know, the fastest to get people up to speed. Yeah. But if we spend more than that, if we spend more like an hour and a half or even two hours, we can play some other games. Basically, you could put aside a morning or an afternoon. and Yeah, a morning or an afternoon. Yeah, that's really good because we can do all manner of things then. Um, we're, we're funding it in, in some interesting ways because you know, I'm, I'm doing it in some places just for expenses. But places that can pay, that money goes to pay for places that can't afford to do it okay. at all because i want to do this with with people who are who don't necessarily have access to these kinds of playful things being london-based i automatically think london but clearly there's a lot of areas outside london in the uk that that really could do with access to this yeah and i, and I think pick, picking a number like a thousand uh, which is really stretching it you know that that pushes it to to be a real challenge to do in the year and then you know at the end of the year or more likely in 2019 to find a few places to show both photographs of people doing it and a selection of the drawings well, let's talk let's move on then talk a little bit about stuff that you're doing with robotics ai and blockchain so notice you've got an ai that believes in magic and a cryptocurrency based on fortune telling and both of these things came up in a, a create hub event just the other night we were talking about artificial intelligence and art and of course the borders around this bring in things like cryptocurrencies blockchain etc so it's very timely from a create hub and technique point of view you can tell us a little bit about that stuff because that 
is in the fashionable area, if you like, of uh, news, AI and blockchain. It's everywhere. Yeah, and you know, in some in some ways, that's that's part of the motivation for messing around in those areas. Yeah, I got into doing a lot of robotics work be- because of Idiobird, you know, because of making mm. mind-reading robot birds, and a project was set up at three-year, two million pound EPSRC funded project called Being There, Humans and Robots in Public Spaces. The idea there was robotics engineers, uh, psychologists, people who look at public interactions would have this conversation, which I think is a really interesting one, about what happens when robots are introduced into into the public. Because that's they're not really out in the wild yet. No, robots... You know, they're in factories, they're in homes to some degree, but we, but we don't take them down the shops very much, you know. And I, I still have this, this question about, you know, if I've got a, a robot that becomes a, a close friend to me, with, you know, because this is already happening. There are some people whose robots have broken down after several years and they've become such friends to them that they want to bury them. Yeah. And we're, you know, we're talking about ceremonies for robots. Well, we do the same with cats, and cats aren't really our friends, are they? Uh, no, mine are evil. But they are also no, they are friends. Some of my best friends are evil. And you know, if I, if so, if you know, if I take my robot to the shops with me and I leave it outside the shop, what do I do with it? Do I do I chain it up? That feels a bit odd. Do I chain it up like a dog? Or does it have its own kind of immobilizer in it in some way? There's this strange slavery aspect to how we might treat robots that becomes really disturbing. There is. I've been, I've been writing a piece of fiction about the notion of turning something off once you've made it sentient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the ethics of that. You could never do it, Thera. I, I don't think you could ever turn something off once you've made it truly intelligent. And so do we build sleep in? Yeah, well, this is it. It's, oof. Yeah. Sorry, anyway, carry on. So, you know, so we spent years um, meeting fairly regularly, having these kinds of conversations, doing experiments. There there was money for um, short residencies for various people. And so as well as the as well as the academics and the robotics engineers, the project funded a bunch of associate creatives. So a puppeteer, a game designer, a choreographer, me as a, a magician, to stretch the, the questions a little bit. You know, and it, the puppeteer was amazing. The first day seeing him demonstrate that pretty much day one on the pup, on a puppetry t- course that he teaches at university, mm-hmm. they talk about breath. And, and he brought a t-shirt to life by demonstrating breathing. <laughs> and, and all of these robotics engineers who'd been trying to make their robots more lifelike had never considered breath because the robots don't need to breathe. Why would you make them breathe? Well, yeah, yeah, it's a fair point. Yeah. And of course, the other thing is delicacy. There's something about life that's, you know, easily injured, delicate. But if you're a robotics engineer, your whole life is spent trying to make the damn thing work. Yeah. And And you're fixing things that don't quite work yet. So in your head, you know, without really thinking about it, you end up with an idea of what a robot should be, which is robust and solid and doesn't go wrong. We think of it as a mechanical machine still. Yeah. Well, of course, the first thing the creatives creatives wanted to do, and I still think it's quite odd to call us creatives when those, you know, those people are making robots. I know, I know, I know, I know. Um, (laughs) But that was the name they called us. And um, the first thing we we wanted to do was break the robot we were given, because that's a creative technique. You know, you break things to see how far you can push them. Yeah. And of course, so what we did was absolutely annoy the the engineers. They're like, why do you want to break this thing, for God's sake? Um, So and it, it, the first day went went very badly, I think. Um, and we thought, oh, this, you know, how do we repair this relationship? So what I did, because they asked me to help design the second day, was put the focus on what we called impossible robotics. So this is a tactic I use a lot with designers. I, I have people design impossible things. Um because then you can get into some really interesting conversations about you what mean impossible ma- things like Heath Robinson. Uh, well, so what I will do with a 
you know, so I, so I do a fair amount of work with universities on different design courses. Mm. So I'll take a group of students and I'll say individually, I just want you to come up with very quickly uh, as many impossibilities as you can. So they will generate lots and lots and lots of impossibilities. And I don't guide too much what I mean by that. I allow them to interpret what, what, you know, what they think an impossibility is. Then I'll put them into groups and have them share their impossibilities with each other and talk about them. And then the group has to choose their three favorites. So that's an interesting conversation. You know, what makes a good impossibility? What kind of, if there was an impossibility competition, what, what would be the best? And you find that people take the, the idea of an impossibility very differently. Uh, people who are very into science will come up with very sciencey based science fiction style mm. impossibilities. Yeah? People who are more, more philosophical will come up with a completely different set of, of, of impossibilities. And when, we, and when you put them on the table next to each other, they're quite amazed by the difference. Yeah? And then, then only when we've then had a vote and we've shared all of the best ones, only then when we start to think about what we could use these impossibilities for. So I did something with a communications course in Lincoln, and there the conversations were, you know, what kind of adverts, posters, uh, how would we use this impossibility in the storytelling we use in communications? It overlaps a lot with, um, with design fiction work, but the problem I have with design fictions is people always know they're a fiction. Mm. And that's why magic is quite useful. I, you know, I can... I, I can, I can show people something that is genuine, but because I'm a magician, uh, they will question me. And that's good, because the point of design fiction is to get people to ask questions. Yeah. And then I can convince them that the thing I'm showing them is real, because it is. And then I can have that thing do something that it can't possibly do. And I put them back to questioning again. So this is something philosophers call aporia. You know, you should you should ask lots and lots and lots and lots of questions with the Socratic method mm -hmm. until you're in this in a state of I really don't know what's going on. And that aporia is a really useful and interesting state to be in. It sounds like my life. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> constantly asking questions, no idea what's going on. So, so Parry, um, Parry, the. The name Parry comes from uh, Paridolia. Oh, okay. Yeah. And there'd been a lot of press about supposedly racist AI. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Microsoft's Tay that started, you know, being a Holocaust denier after about four days and had to be unplugged. <laughs> um, and something called Beauty AI, which was a set of algorithms. This is a bad idea from day one a set of algorithms to judge, objectively judge beauty contests. <laughs> um, and you could, you could upload pictures and it started saying that light skin was better than dark skin. Oh dear. And what, you know what the, it's garbage in, garbage out. Of course it is. Yeah. What's being revealed here are the prejudices of the programmers, the subconscious ones. You know? And so I wanted to play in a, in a gentle way with all of this trumpeting about the promise of AI and the promise of big data. And it's, it's remarkably easy to, to make an AI that behaves in a superstitious manner because in a way what a superstition is is a false correlation between two data sets. Hmm. So teaching an AI that the Pythagorean idea of a life number where you take your birthday you take the day and the month and you add the numbers together until they've reduced down to one digit. That gives you your life number. And if your life number is an eight, then that supposedly, just like horoscopes, gives you um, certain personality characteristics. Once, once you give that to an AI as a serious data set and then add in lots of things like buying data and psychometric information, then it'll it'll make correlations between the fact that that person, as long as you've got the birthdays for people, that that person who's a number eight prefers ready salted crisps over salt and vinegar. You know that that builds up to be a superstition. What what's lacking in terms of you know genuinely believing in something superstitious is an invisible force or invisible creatures that are in some way involved in in creating this superstition. You know, so for the Greeks, it was the gods, you know, or it might be the spirits. Yeah. 
So, you know, this was a couple of summers ago. So I, I was looking for invisible creatures that existed out in the world that people believed in and were interacting with. So Pokemon oh, were, perfect, yeah. were the obvious. <clears throat> yeah. And Pokemon have distinct characters as well. So we matched the, the we matched the nine characteristics of the Pythagorean life numbers that have been developed through these data sets and matched them onto Pokemon. So you would work out your life number and it would give you the Pokemon um, that determines your character. And then and then I would use this in a performance where the whole audience would have their have their personalities identified by by using using Parry's um, technique. Many live performances. I, I, most of my work is through live performances. Yeah, so, and I, you know, I tend to perform at either conferences that are art-based or science-based, you know, science and technology. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you tend to work within the the sort of I'm not saying academic, but within conferences and educational institutions, and do it do it live as opposed to doing a lecture. Yeah, I, I mean, I combine the two. I although I, you know, I'll keep them separate. In, but I'll do them on the same day. So I might do a lecture in the day and I'll do a performance in the evening. L- last week was the Make the City Playable conference for, you know, playable cities. Okay, for the uh, watershed. Down at Watershed, yeah. yeah. So there, there I was talking about danger and how danger is a very important part of play. And I and I shoved my hand into an animal trap. <laughs> to because <laughs> I'm I'm quite literal sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could have been worse. There's a couple of other things that I really want to <clears throat> go over with you. One is um, your books, where you yeah. tie old and new together, and also just you know briefly mention the idea of magic as gallery art. There's an overlap between those things. I've been working as an assessor for Innovate UK for six or seven years now. So I've looked at perhaps a hundred different competitions, and, and and that's that's interesting work for me because I get to see very cutting edge ideas across the board in technology. Um, it's magicians like to keep ahead of mm. things. Innovate UK noticed that artists were doing some really interesting things in the areas of technology, things that possibly could become products. It, it, not in the sense of art products, but they could be things that could be taken to market in different ways. Yeah. But they understood that they don't know how artists work, so they wanted to have a conversation with, with Art Council. At the same time, Art Council were noticing that artists were doing things with technology that were looking like they might be products, and that Art Council doesn't know about how to take technology products to a technology market. So they both wanted to have that conversation, and they both put a. They did a whole bunch of consultancy stuff, which I facilitated some of. So I got to see the process quite early on. And then they funded three different places: Makerversity in London and Madlab in Manchester. Okay. So Madlab did the Arts and Tech Accelerator. So I think they took on. I think it was twelve artists. Had a bunch of funding and four months support, business support. And then the opportunity to apply for further funding at the end if it looked like they might have a viable business. So I was a mentor on that. The reason I talk about all of that is because I'm there's a his, there's a long history of magicians being involved in technology innovation, and it's it's largely uncelebrated, mm-hmm. and that's that's partly the fault of magicians because magicians tend to keep things secret, and often when they die they burn everything. But when you start looking at it, you realize that magicians invented, for instance, the first programmable machine back in 9th century Persia. They invented the first mechanical musical instrument. They invented film, which is culturally fairly yeah. important. Dayglo. Dayglo. Dayglo was invented by... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just for the costumes. <laughs> for, for some very interesting stage effects. Yeah. So I decided I'd write a book called The Trick How Magicians Invented Invention to try to 
um, celebrate this history of magicians being involved. So I've been I've been researching and writing that book for a few years now, and the last chapter got enormous and exploded out out of the belly uh, in a kind of alien way, because I the last chapter was what have we learned? What are the uh, techniques from looking at the history? What are the techniques we've learned? Yeah. And I realized this chapter was just too big to have in. So, you know, working in Scrivener, I went, right, brand new file. That's, that, that'll be another book I'll write later on. And then I realized, it took me a few months to, to work this out, that actually that should be the first book, which is fine. You know, doesn't, it doesn't matter how long this takes, as long as I do so it is well. this the 100 Techniques book? So 100 tech. at, at the moment, the working title is, is 100 Techniques for Designing the Magical. In some ways, it's an easier book to write because each technique gets a page of writing uh, and an image. Hmm. And the technique, the techniques can be contradictory and they can be written by different people. So I'm writing this with two other people, one who's a professional magician and writes a lot for TV and devises a lot of magic for television. So in some ways, he's the very much the magician on the project, a practical magician. And with, and with Nick Taylor, who's an academic over in Huddersfield, who looks at the history of magic. But from a, from the point of view of it being a theatrical art, so in 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 this project, I'm much more the kind of interaction designer on on the whole thing. So get get no, then then our audience listening to this, so it could well, be be artists and big companies, but but small and big. You know, is this hundred techniques the sort of approach and way into understanding the types of things you do in a way that can help them? The, the, the idea is that this isn't a book for magicians. This is a book for anybody who in their practice is interested in the magical, the enchanting, the illusory, the deceptive, the mysterious. And I think once you start unpacking what we mean by the magical or magic, we find that it's – I think it's an area that people are often very pleased when they make something that's in that area, that they can say – it's magical, but that it's something we don't talk about very much. And I think for two reasons. One is that we never, we haven't done the work of unpacking what we mean by magic and the magical. Mm. And because we haven't unpacked it, it comes over as cheesy and kind of Disneyfied, you know. So to say, oh, I want to make something magical, just sounds shallow, because we haven't done the work of un unpacking what we really want when we when we want to make something that's mysterious or enchanting. So the contributors at the moment uh, come from areas of product design, of architecture. Architecture and magic are a huge link. Architects are creating powerful experiences in spaces. And they're always saying things like, you know, when you walk into this room, you should get this illusion of space. Well, I suppose so, yeah. Or the build, that part of the building should look like it's levitating. You know, and if you start talking about taxonomies of magic effects, magicians have been trying to do this for the last 150 years. You know, what are the tox? What are the taxonomies of magic effects? Lots of different ways of approaching that question. But if you if you look at architecture, it's full of vanishings, appearances, levitations, transformations. It, the language seems to overlap quite quite a lot. So if any, if anybody out there has an answer to the question, if I was to ask you to give me one technique that you could write about that is a technique for making something more magical, whatever your interpretation of that of that is, then that's the kind of contribution I want for the book. So, I mean, you've got a website, just worth mentioning it. What's the best yeah. way to contact you? I, I have no imagination when it comes to that stuff. So my webpage is stuartnolan.com. Okay. <laughs> my, e my email is stuart at stuartnolan.com. Oh, right, okay. My Twitter is Stuart Nolan. My Facebook is Stuart Nolan. Uh, Skype that we're talking through now is Stuart Underbar Nolan. Just got a little bit experimental with that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, no. It's just I'm sure some people will contact you following this. I'd, 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 love, I'd love to have that conversation because I think it's an area of design that we don't have enough conversations about. Do you know, it's interesting because I've just spent uh, an hour on the phone for um, something to do with a, one of my contracts. And I've just spent the entire hour talking about how you get people to join in. 
you know. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. And and this is you know large scale IT system I was talking about, but how you put it in front of ordinary people and say, is this any good? You know. <laughs> That's, uh, See, I I think that I think the difficulty with a hundred techniques for designing the magical. Because they don't have to be. It's obviously not the definitive hundred techniques, or even mm. the, fir, the first hundred techniques that we should talk about. It is just a selection of techniques. But I, but I want the book to be balanced between things that have like very practical principles. So to give you an example, a large movement covers a small movement. So this is a phrase magicians use a lot. That if you want to, if you're going to make a small movement that you want to be secret, use a large movement in another way. And that will draw the attention. And, you know, another technique is um, tension causes attention. Both of those techniques aren't particular to the world of magic. You know, dancers know about these techniques. Propagandists do if you tell a lie big enough and loud enough. Absolutely. Sneak absolutely. all sorts of other things out. Yeah, mo- motion graphics designers know this. Yeah. Filmmakers know this. Ed- film editors absolutely know this. So I, and, and even, you know, still graphics designers know this. I think the difference is that, that a lot of the time in those other areas of design, you're trying to draw attention to the small movement mm. and you're accidentally distracting from the small movement. So what you're doing is trying to avoid swamping a small movement with a large movement whereas magicians are using it in a kind of more we're using it to hide that small movement so it's the opposite way usually is how it's being used you know that 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 particular technique a large movement covers a small movement could write pages and pages and pages on that for 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 different design fields and for different art fields i want the book to be a mix of those practical techniques but some pages some of the some of the principles should be more like um, psychological or philosophical ponderings. So what is awe and how do we talk about awe? Um, it's, it's certainly going to be something in there. So gallery art, to finish. 2015, I was part of a show at the Venice Biennale. So this is a, a bigger show that I call Season of Sleeps that involves some of the muscle reading work, but also some um, some technology, but some demonstrations of skill that are linked to historical story. So at the tail end of 1940, there were eight surrealist artists who were escaping France. The Nazis were encroaching. They didn't know how bad things were going to get, but they were getting out of France as quickly as they could. So this was um, André Breton, Jacqueline Lambert, all quite famous surrealist artists who, for all they knew, their work was going to be entirely destroyed by the Nazis. And they decided to make a deck of cards, which is called the Jeu de Marseille. And one thing they did was they tried to encapsulate in this deck of cards a lot of important things about surrealist thought. So they got rid of the... Well, they they changed the suits to the black stars of, of dreams and the subconscious mind, the flames of passion, the keyholes of rational thought, and the bloody wheels of revolution. Right. And and they got rid of kings and queens um, and replaced them with magicians, sirens, and geniuses. Wow. And and those cards, what we we might call the court cards, are either real historical people or characters from books. So Freud is the the genius of the black stars of the subconscious mind, mm-hmm. and and Alice from Alice in Wonderland is the siren. But people like Paracelsus are in there, Lamiel, uh, who's a character from an unfinished Stendhal book, is in there. It's a beautiful piece of work, and in some ways it was a way of folding everything down into the size of a deck of cards so it could be smuggled and hidden and would fly under the radar, very much like Duchamp's Wacom Valise work. So the performances that I did at the Venice Biennale were inspired by this deck of cards I, I never directly use that deck of cards but I'll use a deck of cards I do a performance that's called testing surrealism where we um, we test we kind of test whether surrealism works or not um, at the moment I think surrealism's doing quite well although the the score against surrealism is, is slightly larger it's not as large as you might expect why is it still doing well I thought I mean from an art a traditional art point of view surrealism something very much of the last century Austin surrealism is it's a it's a performance it's actually often when it's in a in, in a gallery it, it gets people come up to it and look at it without knowing that it's something that, that should be played mm-hmm. so they just see it as an art object 
You know, and I've had several people turn to me because I'm always hanging around going, this, I really like this. This is really good. Who's this? Because they just see it as, um, as a piece of work in itself. You know? So what it is is a table with a wine glass with a padlock around the stem of the wine glass. Okay. Four plates, each with a key on. One of those keys opens the lock. When somebody asks what this is or they ask me a question, I say to them, you can play if you want. You just need to find three more people. So they, they'll go off and find people and bring them to me. We check which – I do this completely hands-off. It's really important I never touch anything. And they, they find the key that undoes the lock. They lock the, the lock back on the stem of the wine glass, and they put all the keys into the glass. They get mixed up, and then each of the people chooses a key, and they hold the key above their dinner plate. And I then hypnotize them. So they're in a light trance, and we wait until one of them drops the key. And whichever key they drop – we check whether that opens the lock. If it opens the lock, that's one point to surrealism. So given that this is, this, you might say this is pure chance, surrealism should only be happening a quarter of the time. Yeah. It's actually doing better than that, surprisingly. This, this comes partly from a story that you might have heard people say that if you, if you want to solve a problem, you should uh, have a drink of brandy, sit in front of an open fire, hold, hold a set of keys in your hands and wait till you start to doze off mm. and the keys drop on the floor and wake you up. Now, I'd heard that as a technique um, attributed to Einstein, to Edison, to various people. It turns out it's Dali. In, <laughs> it in, does in sound book. very Dali-ish, thinking about it. It's in, a, it's in a book called 50 Ways to Make Magic. And what he says is, situate yourself in an armchair, of uh, a bony armchair of Spanish design, anoint your wrists with oil of aspic, and hold an antique key above a dinner plate on the floor and wait for sleep to arise in your soul like Annie sat through a sugar lump. And then the key will drop. It'll wake you up. You will have had the shortest amount of sleep possible. Then you paint. Because mm. <laughs> so, for him, it was getting as close to the subconscious as you could. Yeah. So what I'm doing is you're playing, playing with this idea. What was wonderful was the Spanish pavilion was having a, a Dali night. And the guy who was playing Salvador Dali came along and saw this. <laughs> and he went, I'm Salvador Dali, and threw his head back. He did an amazing Salvador Dali impersonation. <laughs> he he took an image of Salvador Dali. So that was Richard Adams speaking to Stuart Nolan. I hope, like me, you enjoyed the conversation. And if you are like me, you've probably been drawn to find out a little bit more about what Stuart Nolan does. So you can find him quite easily online. His website, as he mentioned in the episode, is stuartnolan.com. One of the main projects he mentioned in this episode was 1,000 Mind Readers. And you can actually find that by searching 1000mindreasers.com. That's 1000 as the number. And on there, you can get in contact with Stuart about his work and also potentially getting him to come and run a session where you can become a mind reader yourself. Anyway, it was awesome having this episode. Great to have someone like Stuart part of it too. Now, in other news... Some of you might remember from the last episode that we were talking about an event that was coming up at IBM, which was a technique meetup, essentially our first attempt at doing a networking event. It went really well. We held it on the 19th of October. That's a Thursday night. And we essentially had a conversation about artificial intelligence. There was an awesome panel discussion with some great artists and some representatives from IBM talking about artificial intelligence and how that might change people's creative processes in the future anyway that's all we have time for this week the music this week was something elevated by broke for free and again thank you to you for listening we'll be back again next month with another episode so until then take very good care of yourselves goodbye
design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.